I don't know how you've arrived this evening. I don't know what thoughts are going through your mind. Um, with all that's going on in the world, the, the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel and Palestine, closer to home, things going on with the Birmingham City Council. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what areas of chaos are affecting you. Uh, difficulties in relationships, people not listening to each other, not understanding each other. And sometimes it can be easy to ask. People at work saying to me, oh, it's always religion that causes war. And to an extent, there is some truth in that. It's not always true. Um, but it's easy to ask the question, what is God doing? What is God like in all this mess? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. I've been working my way, as Donald said, through the book of Genesis, and just take it one chapter at a time, um, working through the whole book, not avoiding anything, just doing it chapter by chapter. And just a quick recap, so in Genesis, first book of the Bible, you have God creates uh, everything, he, he creates the world, um, and then there's the story of Adam and Eve, and then their, their children, Cain and Abel, then we worked through the story of Noah through a number of chapters, we had several genealogies, and generally the kind of theme is God being creative and generous and kind. This is from uh, Genesis chapter 1, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So there's that theme, and then there's human beings kind of interacting with each other and interacting with God and generally making a mess of things, and God then trying to make order and beauty again out of the mess that we've made. And um, something I'd never noticed before, I was, uh, you're not meant to say this, but I was daydreaming in church a few weeks ago, and uh, something I'd never thought about, and I don't know if this will be helpful to you, was the idea, so in the beginning, right at the beginning of the Bible, God says, let there be light, and there was light. And if you imagine pure light, I don't know if you remember back to your days in physics, pure light is just white pure white light. And so God says, let there be light. And then in the story of Noah, humanity has got so bad that it's necessary for God to come and put an end to things. Just the wickedness couldn't go on, the damage people were doing to each other. And the way God judges is through water. So rain comes down. And I don't know if you remember your physics, but when pure light goes through a certain kind of prism or through a drop of water, do you remember what happens? I don't know if you did that experiment in physics, whether you put the light through the prism, it's like, oh, wow, look at that, all the different colors. And so one color of light becomes many. And so what you got is, if you imagine God's light that he'd created passing through his judgment, which is the water, and what came from that was one of these. This is in Erdington. Ben Kitchen took this. Um, and so it's the idea that God in his creation and in our mess and then in the judgment and the chaos, God from the judgment and the chaos takes something and creates beauty and creates something new and new life. And then, and then after that, God, God shows the rainbow to Noah and his sons and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's the idea of God bringing beauty and new life from chaos and disorder. And part of the blessing, if you notice there in both those passages, part of the blessing is to multiply and to fill the earth, to spread out in it. And so now we come to today's passage, Genesis chapter 11. And actually, Genesis chapter 11 acts as kind of a bridge 
from everything we've been looking at so far, so from, from creation onwards, we get to Genesis chapter 11, and it's kind of a bridge between what's called the, the primeval history, so all the stories we've had so far, and now after chapter 11, we're moving on to the stories of the people who go on to become the nation of Israel, so talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what the Jews would call the patriarchs. So chapter 11 is like a bridge from the primeval history into the patriarchs. You might be like, I don't know what you're on about, Paul, but for some people, hopefully that's helpful. And chapter 11 is divided into three sections. And, and to help you follow where the three sections are, my wife Felicity is going to read um, the, the whole of chapter 11 in a moment. Um, and to help you follow, there are three sections. And on the PowerPoint, there will be a different background on each section of the reading, so you can be like, okay, we've moved on to section two now. And the three sections basically are, firstly, the story of the Tower of Babel that you might remember from Sunday school. And then there's a whole list of generations of one of Noah's descendants, Shem, um, and they're called the Semites, which is where we get the word Semitism, or Semitic, or anti-Semitism, because of Shem, they're his descendants. And so we go through 10 generations of them, and then the camera focuses in on one of Shem's descendants, a man called Terah, and his sons, particularly his son Abram. So I'm going to hand over to you, Flisty. And this is Genesis chapter 11. Here we go. <clears throat> now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will now do. But nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad for 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived for 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah for 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived for 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber for 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived for 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg for 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived for 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu for 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived for 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug for 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived for 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor for 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived for 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah for 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived for 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. 
Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iskar. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. No, no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Brilliant. Thanks, Felicity. So, what's going on there? Just a, a kind of quick summary. Basically, what you've got is all the people are gathered together in one place, and they've got one language, and they have this big building project, and God doesn't like the building project, so he comes and uh, creates confusion by changing their languages. And then in that second section, you've got generations um, of people who live a really long time and have unusual names, like men called Sheila. Um, and if you're, if you're interested in... in uh, and you, ha- you didn't hear the talks on Genesis chapter 5 and 10, you're interested in those genealogies and the really long ages and the interesting names, then, then you can watch the talks on Genesis 5 and 10. I'll go into that a bit more. I'm not going to go into that tonight. Um, and then you have this family who uh, one of their lads dies young, and there's a lady who can't have kids, and they try to travel to one place but don't quite make it there, and then the dad dies as well. So what's all that about? What's going on? What's God doing there? And we come back to that question, what is God like in all this mess? And very simply, what we're going to do tonight is just think about what can we learn from Genesis chapter 11. And what I'm going to do this evening is three things. Firstly, we're going to look at one thing that this passage says about what God is like. And then secondly, we're going to look at two ways this passage challenges common thought patterns that we might have. And thirdly... We're going to look at three practical things very quickly that we can do based on Genesis chapter 11 to help us live in a way that pleases God. Before we do that, we, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you're present here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it has spoken powerfully over many generations. And we invite you now, Lord and King, to come and speak to us through your word. Would you give us open minds and open hearts? Would you speak through your word, the Bible? We honor you as king here this evening. Amen. So, straight into it. That first question, what is God like? What's God like? I was at work, so I I work fitting shutters, and uh, on Monday... Uh, Monday afternoon, I was fitting shutters for an older Irish man, and uh, we were in, in the upstairs bedroom, and it was, a, it was one of those bow bays, you know, the bays that kind of come round like that, I think there was five sections to it, and it was a bit of a complicated one to measure, so I was there measuring it for a while, and the Irish man, the old guy, was behind me watching me work, and uh, I won't do his accent because I don't want to offend anyone, um, <laughs> but he was watching me, and he said, I was in the construction industry. And watching you measure this window reminds me of a joke I heard. And uh, <laughs> this, this Irish guy got a job on a construction site. 
And he was there putting down paving slabs and uh, sorting out uh, in, in the build-up to a curb, and he's putting down all the blocks. And he was doing it really accurately and well, doing all these paving slabs and really focusing on his work, doing a really nice job of it. And behind him, there was this man watching what he was doing. And the man comes over and says, oh, I'm, I'm really admiring the work you're doing there. You're doing a really nice job of that. And the Irishman says to him, oh, and, and who are you? And the guy says, oh, I'm a precision engineer. And we're used to working to within a thousandth of an inch. And the Irish guy says to him, I'd oh, be no good at this job. You have to be bang on. <laughs> there's, something, there's something in us that enjoys when proud people get showed up. And so at the start of this passage, what we've got is we've got this group of people, and they're all gathered in one place. And maybe they are proud. It says this, and they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And the use of, the, the use of, of using fire to make strong bricks was a clever technology for the time. People have put a lot of study into where, more or less, these people were. And, and they traveled east from a place where there was lots of stone available for building. And now they're in a place where there wasn't much stone available for construction. And so the, the idea of using fire to, to bake bricks um, was quite a, a good invention, a helpful one, for building large structures. And uh, if you're wondering what bitumen is, it's a form of petroleum, it's, often, it's called, often called asphalt as well. So in the UK, about 70% of the use of bitumen is in roads for making asphalt. Um, and you, you can buy actually a litre can of, of bitumen paint for about 15 quid online if you want to. Little side note for you. Um, <laughs> it's good for waterproofing. Um, and then they said this, they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So there's that line there, let us make a name for ourselves. So maybe there is an element of pride there. And there's something else as well. Um, if you see that line there, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I don't know if you remember God's blessing from the beginning that I talked about. God said, fill the earth. In other words, spread out. Fill the earth and subdue it. Whereas these people now are saying, we don't want to be dispersed. We want to stick together in this one place. So there's an element there, perhaps, of disobedience to something that God had already said. And there's something else in there as well. And I, I found this quite interesting looking into this passage. I, I never knew this. So that line where it says, uh, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. From what we know of the people of the time where they were, and that particular phrase, a tower with its top in the heavens, and, and the kind of talk around how the structure was being built with bricks and bitumen, it's pretty certain um, that that line there, top with its, I'd always imagined the Tower of Babel as a really tall tower. That's kind of how it is in the children's books. But we're pretty confident now that actually what it means there, a tower with its top in the heavens, is actually a reference uh, to what's called, I don't know if you've heard of this before, a ziggurat, um, which at that time, it's kind of like a temple complex. So the idea is, is, isn't that it's a tower that goes up into heaven, a really tall tower. It's a tower where the top of it is connected to the divine. In other words, if you build your city, 
you build this ziggurat, it's kind of like a, a layered, sort of like a pyramid, and at the top of that, the idea was that your God would live there, and so you would give things to your God and keep your God happy, and then your God would bless you. In other words, it's a form of saying, it's basically idolatry. It's the idea that you have your religion and your God, and you're in control because you keep your God happy, and then your God blesses you, and, and you're the one that's in charge. It's, it's a form of idolatry. And so it, it, it's quite likely that the Tower of Babel is a reference to a ziggurat, which you've got an image of a ziggurat. Some of them have lasted to this day. It's your God, your religion on your terms. So in summary, we've got these people with their clever technology and their big plans and projects. And there's an element of pride. There's an element of disobedience. There's probably an element of idolatry. Proud, disobedient, idolatry. And all three of those things, I think, can be summed up under pride. Pride, obviously, can be summed up under pride. Um, and then disobedience, the idea that you're not going to do God's thing, things God's way, you're going to do it my own way. There's an element of pride in that. And then in idolatry, it's like, no, I don't, I don't need to listen to you, God, because I've got my own idea of the divine. I'm in control of my own religious practice. And then God confuses them, and they get spread all over the place. And then the camera shifts, and we had those ten generations. And it focuses in on this one particular family. And some of the main things worth saying about this family were that Haran dies young, that Sarah was barren and had no child, and then they try to relocate to Canaan, but end up somewhere else, and then Terah dies. And it's not exactly impressive. So what you see here, as the camera zooms in from this big building project through 10 generations, it now zooms into a family. And it's a family that's suffering and struggling and has experienced some degree of failure. But the interesting thing is that Terah's son Abraham and his wife Sarah, those of you who know the Bible will know that they go on to be Abraham and Sarah. So in the middle of this suffering and mess and failure, those two people, that couple, if you think about world history, they're probably two of the most influential people that have ever lived. So the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, all trace themselves back to this couple, Abraham and Sarah, and they receive God's covenant and God's promises. So where are we going with this? What do we learn from Genesis chapter 11? What is God like? I think to answer that question, what we see in Genesis chapter 11, all I've done is I've, I've looked through the Bible and there's something that gets repeated again and again and again. And it's something that we see here in Genesis chapter 11. But there are so many references to this idea of what God's like. And I'm just going to show you five verses. It's repeated so often in the Bible, this idea. And it's this. This from the Psalms. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Then Proverbs, pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Then Matthew, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Luke, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's from Mary's prayer. And James, therefore it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The Bible talks about this a lot. What's God like? God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. He stops proud people and he confuses what they're doing, but he lifts up the suffering and the humble and the poor. And so that leads us to think, well, what about, how does that apply to our lives? What does that mean for us? I've got a few pictures of monkeys in this slide here. It kind of went in a weird tangent. And I started using, from here on, I started using monkey photos as the background. So I hope you enjoy monkey photographs. I really enjoyed these. Um, so what about us? What about me? Is there anything in me that looks like pride? The idea that I can do it. Here's my plans. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'll do it in my own steam. I don't need anyone to help me. Or is there anything in me that's disobedient? I won't do things God's way. My way is far more sensible. And then this one is a far more subtle one, the idea of idolatry. I think it's possible for you to be a Christian who comes to church and still practice idolatry, but in a subtle kind of Christian way. And that, what does that look like? That looks like I'll do religion and God on my terms. If I do my bit, God will bless me. I don't need to listen to him or submit to him or anything like that. I just need to come to church, read the Bible, act right, and I'll be blessed. So this is my religion on my terms. I'm going to do Christianity my way, not submit to the actual real God. I'm going to do Christianity my way. And that, that's idolatry because you're, you're, you've created an idol for yourself that isn't the true living God. You've just said, this is how I intend to worship, and that's how it's going to be. So pride, disobedience, idolatry, and it, it all kind of gets wrapped up in pride. And if you go to any nursing home in the local area, you'll find people who lived their whole lives under these three principles and who now can't even get to the toilet by themselves. But there's another side to it as well. And for some of us, this is the main thing you need to take away tonight. And it's this. If you're here tonight and you're struggling, like the family that we zoomed in on, like Terra's family, if you're here tonight and you're struggling and the world's weighing you down and you know your own failings and limitations, then there's good news for you because there is a living God and he wants to be close to you. He wants you to know him. He wants to give you hope tonight. So, moving on, how do we get our thinking right? Another monkey photo for you. Um, there are two ways, I think there are two common patterns of thought that Genesis chapter 11 challenges. So, moving on now to that second section. Two common patterns of, th of, of thought, and this passage challenges them. And the first one is this, if you're the kind of person and you think that this life is all about your goals and your projects, and this is subtle, but I think if you think about it, so much of the way we're taught to think from an early age is like this. If you think about it, it's about what are you going to achieve with your life? What will your career be? How will you succeed? How will you stand out? How will you make a comfortable life for yourself? And it's subtle, but it's actually a self-centered way of thinking. It's my life, my goals, my projects. And how does Genesis chapter 11 challenge that kind of thinking? Look at this. There they are, 10 generations of people, one after another. And what do we learn from that? That God does things in his time, often over hundreds of years, 
to fulfill his story, his way. And we're just a tiny little speck in that world history. Compared to him, we're just a tiny little speck. And that's not to put you down. It's not to put you down, but it's to try and give you a healthy perspective of what's true. If you think about the guy up there, top right corner, Peleg, he's just one name in a series of names. He's important, but he's just a link in the generations. And so many people through the Bible, some who do big things, some who do small things, they're all playing part in God's big story, but they're all a small part in a story that spans thousands of years. And this is the takeaway. If you're somebody and you think that this life is all about you and your goals and your projects, the the news that you get from Genesis chapter 11 is this. We aren't the main event in life. God is. If you're somebody and you think that this life is all about you achieving your goals, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to live a miserable life because that's not how this world works. We aren't the main event. God is. But he invites us to play a part in that story. And actually, there's something freeing in that. If you, if you get het up about making sure that you live your life and you live to your maximum potential, that's a difficult way to live. There's actually something liberating, being like, I'm just a small part in a big story. And actually, the main character here isn't me. It's him. Does that make sense? It's a healthy way of looking at things. And then the second way of thinking that this passage challenges is, and we've we've touched on this tonight, if you're worried about the chaos in this world and in your life, and if there are things that make you struggle and keep you awake at night, and you struggle to see any hope in them, if there's chaos at the moment, I don't know what your personal situation is or how you feel when you watch the news, if there are things in your life that you just feel this chaos is overwhelming, I can't see a way through this. Then think back to what I said about Noah. So if you think about that one beam of light and where it meets the water of God's judgment and then it gets refracted and it becomes something beautiful, a rainbow, and then new life came. And there's beauty and new life from judgment. And then if you think about those guys that were building at Babel, building the tower, if you think about them, they were one people group with one language and they had one project that wasn't God's way. And God came and God created chaos in that. God's judgment there was to create chaos. And so you've got a people that are one people with one language. And in that chaos, God creates language. God creates beauty and variety. And actually what ends up happening is that the people get spread out. So God fulfills his purpose in the chaos, in the misunderstanding. If you think about those builders, they thought, oh, this is a really cool project, actually. We're going to build something pretty impressive. And then it all just got abandoned. And it seemed like chaos and failure. But what God's actually done is he's created beauty and variety. And he's fulfilling his purposes in the middle of the chaos. Do you see where I'm getting at? And then, in God's own time, and God often works slowly over hundreds of years, hundreds of years after this story, we come to the story of Jesus, one man, and then the chaos of human sin, just the mess that humanity's made of the world. And you've got this one man alone, dying and bleeding on a cross. And if you think about Jesus' followers, they're 
one ethnic group, and they probably spoke one language, maybe two between them. And there's this one group of people, and they're frightened, and their leader's dying on the cross, and they're just a small group in a massive Roman empire, and they've just got the one language, and Jesus is there on the cross. And then something happens, and I'd never noticed this before, I'd never made this link, but if you think about what happens in Acts chapter 2, so Jesus is raised from the dead, and so you've got this group of people, and they have one language, one ethnic background, and suddenly in Acts chapter 2, there's a chaotic scene, and the Holy Spirit comes and fires on each person. And what happens? Suddenly, this small group of people who are from one ethnic background of one language gets expanded into people of all kinds of ethnic backgrounds and all kinds of languages. If you're not familiar with the story, read Acts chapter 2. And so from being one group in that chaos... In that judgment that happens at the cross, suddenly there's variety and beauty and, and, and the word about Jesus gets spread all over the world. Can you kind of see that repeating pattern from one thing and there's chaos and there's judgment, but suddenly beauty and new life comes out of it. And people who can't see eye to eye, who don't get on with each other, suddenly do get on with each other. People who can't understand each other, literally can't understand each other because of language, suddenly they're able to understand each other in this new life that Jesus has created. And so what's the takeaway? If you're someone who's worried about chaos in the world and in your life, the takeaway is that God can turn chaos into beauty and new life. It's something he specializes in. And then just something to think about. If you think about those builders firing those bricks, so they used fire to make brick. I think the Hebrew word is literally like building stones. So they're using fire to create brick to make something that wasn't pleasing to God and that now is just a ruin that God abandoned. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, there's fire on each person. And look at this. This is from 1 Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Not a ziggurat, not a temple to a false god, but into a temple to the living God, to be a holy priesthood. So what am I saying there? Instead of fire making bricks to make something that doesn't please God, when the fire of the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost... What was begun there was living stones being built together to become what you see around you this evening, the church. And it's a structure that's lasted thousands of years and goes on growing. And it's not built from bricks, but it's built from people, from human lives. So just to finish, what can we do? Another monkey picture for you. What can we do as a result of this? Three practical things we can do. Number one, when you go to, before you go to bed this evening, look at your week ahead, and I, I did this and I found it challenging, look at your week ahead and think about each activity that you're going to be doing this week. So I don't know if you, if you do that on your phone or if you've got a wall calendar, think about the activities that you're doing this week and ask yourself this question, what in my week looks like me building my own projects? What are the little babels that you're building for yourself? What is there this week that's actually about me fulfilling my projects for my own ends? 
And then what this week looks like me humbly joining in with what God's doing in his big story. And ask yourself, what is there in my normal day-to-day life that I could do differently or change altogether with the aim of serving him, not my own ends? Does that make sense? Have a look at your week. Where is it that you're actually just building your own little tower? And how could you turn that round to be, actually, Jesus, I want to join in with what you're doing in the world? Or, if you don't fancy doing that, if you're someone who struggles with anxiety, if there's chaos around you and you're finding it a little bit overwhelming, write a list of all the things in your life that are chaotic right now. If you don't fancy doing that first one, write a list of all the things in your life that you find a bit too chaotic. And with that list, and this is not an easy activity, but take time over it. Maybe your life just feels full of failure and chaos right now. Take that list and imagine how could God turn this thing into something beautiful? How could new life come from this terrible situation? If God, is doing, if God were to do something new in this situation, maybe something in the news, if God were to do something new, would I notice it? So many times in human history, God's used chaos to bring something new and exciting and beautiful. Even in the history of this church, the way that God's used chaos to bring new life that we weren't expecting. Or if you don't fancy doing either of those things, take one chaotic situation that you notice regularly. Maybe there's two people in your life that just don't see eye to eye, where communications broke down. Take one chaotic situation, and very simply, I think there's great value in praying consistently for something. Take one chaotic situation and pray about it in a, in an, in a focused way, in an organized way, and then keep watching and keep praying for God's gift of beauty and new life and for there to be hearing and understanding and unity in that situation. I think we can be a difference in this world. I think God's church is called to make a difference, to bring unity and cohesion where there is just people not seeing eye to eye. Just as I finish, one day things are going to be different. One day that chaos that might be overwhelming you tonight, that's been around since the time of Babel, one day all of that is going to be put to an end and there will be nothing but order and beauty, and we look forward to that day. It's not now, but it's coming. Just as, just as in the book of Daniel, the prophet looked forward and saw a day when Jesus would be worshipped by every language and tongue and nation, and that's happening today. So one day, this is going to happen. This is John looking forward in Revelation. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting. We sang that earlier, shout of acclamation. They were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, would you come in the choir and speak to us what it is that you'd have us here from tonight.